0: Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to our monthly Schola Christi group, the the, uh, School of Christ. And as I was just mentioning, we've been reading the, the writing of one author for the last two years, maybe more than two years now, Romano Guardini, on meditations before Mass. And it was meant in the beginning, I think, to help us. Focus upon what the Church tells us is the source and summit of our life as Christian men and women, the Holy Eucharist. And Romano Guardini was a, a priest in the early 20th century, and he was writing this book that we've been discussing in the 1940s. And in many ways, the work is seen as uh, an anticipation of what we see develop at the Second Vatican Council, at least uh, the desire of the Council that we would enter more fully into the tradition. And seek to understand it, uh, to engage in a kind of resourcement, to go back to the sources of our understanding of the liturgy in order that we might more fully participate in the Mass. And so Guardini has led this on the, on this wonderful journey for these last two years from everything to, uh, from our, our attitude and our composure and our preparation for Mass, Uh, all the way through crossing the threshold into the church, entrance into the altar and then every other part of the Mass itself. And we've come now to the the last three meditations of the the book after two years. And Gordini's going to get a little bit more specific with us uh, tonight in particular, Uh, not in the sense of becoming overly theological, but in the sense of making a distinction. And particular a distinction of language that often we can be very lazy in our thinking and and because of that sometimes we don't have a kind of clarity about what we believe or the way that we articulate it and this is something that guardini wants to address with us tonight last time uh, if you remember he was discussing with us the, the reality of the presence of christ within the holy eucharist and uh it, Christ is take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. That this is not simply a symbol in the way that people think of it, but it, it truly makes pre- present to us the mystery of God, the mystery of Christ in all of his fullness, body, blood, soul, and divinity. We enter into this radical communion through our reception of the Eucharist. But one of Gordini's fears is that if, if we were to limit our understanding to that, of Christ simply being present in the Eucharist, we, uh, as we often will do, can uh, objectify as something we take as consumers, as it were. It's like a shot in the arm to give us grace, but often we can sort of take it for ourselves and think, well, I need this grace for this purpose in my life, or to pursue these graces in my life, or to simply get through this set of circumstances in our life. We can receive the Holy Eucharist, in other words, in a kind of individualistic fashion, and we can lose sight of the vital relationship that has to exist with Christ. Otherwise, again, our understanding of the Eucharist devolves into something that makes it into an object. And when that happens, our belief in the real presence of Christ eventually will diminish, or will develop a distorted view of the Holy Eucharist. A lot of recent studies have indicated that many who identify themselves as Catholic Christians do not believe in the real presence of Christ. And I think part of the reason for this is that slowly over time it was objectified. And so an approached in this individualistic kind of fashion. And when that happens, a person lose, uh, loses sight of the context of that whole relationship with Christ that we are to be engaged in our day-to-day life. It's only in the context of that relationship what God has done for us in his son from the incarnation all the way through the Paschal Mystery, Resurrection, Pentecost, the formation of the Church, all of this is present to us in the Eucharist, but we are to be engaged in this relationship with him in the context of that fullness in our every, everyday life, if we are to understand the nature of the Eucharist and if it's to bear fruit in our lives. And so this is what he's going to be emphasizing tonight. We've focused on the Eucharist as feast, and now he wants us to focus on it as encounter uh, with Christ, and so that we we don't fall into this overly, uh, uh, again, individualistic approach to the Eucharist. And so language, you'll see, is very important to him, not in an overcomplicated way, but just in a way that uh, we have kind of clarity about what we are doing at Mass, how we see it and understand it. okay. So the uh, just for those who are new or, or watching via YouTube, the print in Reddit italicized uh, is just my little commentary to get us going here. Guardini examines with us language used in regards to the Eucharist and how it affects our understanding of what and specifically here in this reflection, who we receive. After having discussed the bread of life discourse with us and its sharp language emphasizing the reality of the gift that Christ makes of himself to us, Guardini doesn't want us to reduce the Eucharist to an object and lose sight of the person. And so you can see how that happens that people can come to mass pro forma. It can be something that becomes very cultural for us We were taught at an early age that you go to Mass, that you have an obligation to go to Mass every Sunday. People can even sort of make their way up with a kind of herd mentality to receive the Holy Eucharist, whether or not they are aware of the state of their soul or attentive to what the nature of their relationship with Christ has been up until that point in time or if they're prepared in mind and heart to receive him. Just as he used very sharp language in helping us understand the reality of what we were seeing, now he's going to use equally sharp language to focus us back again onto the person of Christ. He says, a person is not passed about. He comes, enters into a vital you-me relationship. Gives himself freely and personally. This is the second concept inherent in the Mass. The first was the meal the second is the encounter Christ dwells among us and in the Eucharist he is he who comes to me and who emphasizes throughout the reflection he who comes to me That there's something radically personal about this that there's an intimate relationship that must exist between ourselves and Christ in order for our reception then of the gift that he offers us to bear fruit that it might transform us, that it might uh, allow us to reach our full dignity, uh, as well as reach for our destiny in Christ. And so we don't want to receive the Eucharist outside of this context, he tells us. A memorial can commemorate only a person. And this I found sort of interesting because I hadn't thought about it in, this way before because we often think of like the war memorial or something along those lines and uh, as being dedicated to uh, those who served in a particular war, for example, but often we will abstract that from the individuals who actually fought and died and lost their lives. And so what he's saying here, a commemoration, the memorial that we celebrate here is not an abstract concept. It's the person, it's it's Christ and what he did on our behalf, both, both in taking our flesh upon himself, but then giving himself to us on the cross and then in, in the Holy Eucharist. Commemoration always implies uh, a person, and it presupposes a vital rel- relationship to that person. Genuine commemora- commemoration is a projection of an already existing we relationship. In other words Christ comes to us in all his personal reality everything he has and is and his salutary destiny this naturally changes our understanding of the word feast as well which is an understatement so what he's saying that takes place within the Holy Eucharist is that it's not Christ simply coming before us but his whole his whole self salvific and redemptory work. Everything about him, everything that he's done for us, is made present to us in the Holy Eucharist. And so this is why this is where you begin to understand why Guardini is stressing what he's saying. That outside of this vital relationship and understanding the whole reality of what God has done for us through the incarnation, taking our flesh upon himself, his teaching his suffering and death, his resurrection, outside of the context of this live relationship where we're entering into this reality and struggling to understand it and enter into it through our prayer, we really can't understand then the true gift of the Eucharist because in the Eucharist, this whole reality is made present to us. I think I've mentioned in past groups that there have been a number of saints that have said that we would do well at various times in our life if we experienced a kind of fear and trembling about our participation in the Eucharist. Not in an anxious kind of way, but in the sense that we see the awesomeness of, of the reality. That the fullness of sal- the salvific work of Christ, all of it made present in his person is made present to us. But more than that, we receive it into our very being in a transformative way. And so in this sense, it far exceeds any human union and communion we could possibly understand. That as close as we are with another person, no matter how deep and intimate that relationship is, there's always a kind of subtle boundary there. The embrace, where we try to enfold the other person into ourself, or where we even shake hands with another person, or the kiss that is shared. You know, the, the attempt to draw the other person's breath, their very being into ourself. That kiss ends, that embrace ends, and that handshake ends. And no matter how deeply we know another person, it can't compare in the, in the way that we are known by God in this intimate communion and also come to know Him. That it is in and through this gift that we are able to penetrate into the very depths of the mystery of God Himself. It is in and through this gift that we also receive the Holy Spirit that, that allows us to unite our prayers to these deep groans that rise within us, these groans of love that search the very depths of god this is the reality that is made present to us that transforms us and ultimately promises us the, the fullness of intimacy with the holy trinity promises us a deification and when we sort of banalize this when we strip the eucharist down pull it out and pulled out of the relationship and began to receive it sort of in this consumeristic way. I've told you, I've even had people sort of reach out and take the host from me. We've lost a sense, not just of reverence, but I think of how it is that we would receive something so extraordinary that we would not take it, but rather receive it humbly and not only that but receive it again with this kind of fear and trembling because we know that we're being drawn into something that is beyond our understanding and that, it's own, that we only come to see in and through the gift of, of faith. We comprehend it through not simply through intellect, not through reason but through something God gives us to look upon it and see it in all of its richness. And so one wonders how we got to the state that we have, where so f- few, I one sees so few, so many now have lost a sense of the presence of Christ within the Eucharist. What an extraordinary loss that is. Because we are saying basically God is making everything that He's done to us present in this host. And present to us in such a way that it becomes transformative, that it enters into our our very being. And, you know, I think we've heard that phrase, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith, but we rattle off these words so easily and don't capture them in their depth. And I think this is what Guardini does so well. It is possible, he tells us, to go back and recapture attitudes that we find fostered by Christ himself, and that we find fostered by the saints of the church throughout the ages. It is possible for us to recapture something of the fullness of the tradition and embrace it in our own age and pass it on to others. But in our day and age, it's not something that's just going to be handed to us. We really have to struggle, uh, I, I think, to do the work that Guardini is calling us to do. We can't be lazy about it, or about any aspect of the spiritual life, to be honest about you, with you. But there has to be a kind of asceticism that we engage in, in our Christianity, that we, we are constantly striving to understand the mystery that God has revealed to us in himself in a deeper way, with all of our being, through our, our prayer, our study, through the reception of the sacraments themselves. our, our reading of the fathers and the doctors of the church that we are trying we would be ever trying to enter into this mystery more and more fully I think Eucharistic adoration in particular we are prolonging our participation in that reality by gazing upon the Eucharistic face of Christ but not only that we are gazing upon the whole salvific and redemptive work of Christ and so we are being taught Even as we sit there in absolute silence, God is revealing this and the fullness of the truth of it to us. It's not simply a passive experience for us. Our gaze is a gaze of love and faith, and God's gaze at us from his Eucharistic faith is, is something that's transformative and that opens the eyes and the eyes of our faith fully that we can understand the mystery in a greater way. Let's see, where did I leave off? Naturally, this naturally changes our understanding of the word feast as well. Gordini writes, he comes in the plenitude of his whole redemptory life. Each time in the particular mystery of the day that the unrolling liturgical year is commemorating, the mystery of God's incarnation, or his epiphany, or his passion, or his resurrection and ascension, he comes to us from the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit to wait for him to invite him to go to receive him and honor and praise him to be with him drawn into the intimacy of communion with him that is the Christian feast God has engaged us in the ultimate form of intimacy that surpasses any worldly union so we we wait for him so again it's not a passive and not meant to be a passive experience for us. I think we've all become familiar that in our day, the idea of active participation is often seen as serving at mass, of reading at mass, or having some task like passing the basket, perhaps. But Guardini's vision is quite different. It involves the whole self and preparing ourselves for entering into this deepest of union. Unions deeper than anything that we understand on, on a human level and that we are preparing ourselves to invite him calling him to, to enter into us so when we come to mass uh, it should be with these attitudes uh, already uh, active within our minds and our hearts in order that that experience uh, might not pass us by in uh, in a state of distraction or a state of abstraction, you know, where where our mind's completely in a different place altogether, rather than on what's taking place at that altar. And um, I think, in some ways, here, you know, it was the Eucharistic adoration that slowly began to transform things for us in terms of, I think of the reverence that I've seen at the Mass, but not only that, I think it's how people enter into the celebration of Mass itself, that it slowed things down. I think it gave people that opportunity to foster that kind of attitude, to prepare themselves for what was to come, even if it was in an ever so subtle form, that the adoration would typically go right up to the beginning of Mass before we would repose or celebrate benediction. And so the way that people came into Mass became different over the course of time. Silence. They came in would kneel. Their attentiveness would be at the altar already prior to the Mass and focused on what is present there. And then after Mass, it almost became unnecessary for us. You know how the priest often will be outside shaking hands after the Mass. It almost became unnecessary to do that because people began to linger in the chapel to make their act of thanksgiving for what they had just participated in. And that was nothing that we did here at the Oratory other than making the Eucharist accessible in this this fashion, To perpetuate the adoration, the, the praise, the intimacy that we experience in the Mass throughout the course of the day and so, if there's one, I think it's one of the strongest ways, I think, to incorporate what, everything that we've studied from Guardini over these past couple of years. In fact, it's more powerful than the things that we've read, even, because it's not only an intellectual thing. I think these things are seen through faith and love. And so sometimes that silence of adoration communicates everything that we've studied here. We might not be able to articulate it in the same way. Oh, we, we know it and then through the eyes of faith ok so on to Guardini and what he teaches us about it. any questions or comments before we get started anything curious or that would be helpful to clarify so, yes I have a question I don't know if that would be explained
1: on mm-hmm. uh, he, right he, he, uh, he writes he comes in the Guardini writes in the plenitude of his whole redemptive life, each time in the particular mystery of the day that the unrolling liturgical year is commemorating. So I know that we are commemorating certain mysteries. I, I don't completely understand what, what it means that he comes to us in the particular mystery of the day.
0: Right. Say, at Christmas, when we are celebrating the incarnation, mm-hmm. that in particular then, that That mystery of the Word becoming flesh becomes present to us. And again, not in simply an abstracted way where we're thinking about it or praying about it, but the very mystery of our Lord's birth is present to us in the Holy Eucharist. So God becoming one of us is present in and through that feast day for us. So what Guardini is doing is trying to pull us out of, again, this abstracted way in which we often will celebrate liturgy. As outside observers are looking back uh, in an historical way, that this is something, we're celebrating something that took place 2,000 years ago. Whereas what Guardini is saying is that this mystery is made present to us here and now and through the gift of the Eucharist. So we are not simply thinking about what took place in Bethlehem or, or, or at the Annunciation we are present there and that mystery is present to us in the most immediate fashion which is an extraordinary thing to say because it's uh, none of us is outside of the deepest realities that God has revealed of himself. To us and so we would never should never think oh if I lived back in the time of Christ then I would have been able to hear him teach for myself or felt his touch or, or walked with him well as Catholic Christians we would, should think we lack absolutely nothing because the fullness of that reality from his birth on his teachings all of it is made perfectly present to us in the Holy Eucharist Yes. So, I may not
1: understand
0: this correctly, but so each day we experience the mystery of the day. That, but I I think what Gordini is saying to us is that the fullness of the salvific mystery is made present to us. So not only what we celebrate in the feast day, in particular then because all the prayers and the readings and everything are, are focused on that as well. But every time we celebrate the, the Holy Eucharist, that the fullness of that redemptive work is made present to us. And so there would be no need for us to fill that in any way our experience of Christ is lacking uh, in the most concrete, tangible way. That it is present to us and we are present to it in an unparalleled way. And in some sense more than those who saw him and walked with him. Because we receive it into our very being. Carol. Say that again? Yes. That's right. And Mary, you know, I think Mary participated in this radical way as it was unfolding. You know, the whole she the reference to her over and over again in Luke, when she witnessed a certain mystery. would say she pondered these things within her heart. And St. John Paul II refers to Mary as the inexhaustible source of memory for the entire church. So through her intercession and through her presence in our our life, we are aided in our penetrating these mysteries and understanding them because she experienced them most fully as Theotokos, as God Bearer, that she bore him within her womb. Uh, and we, in similar ways, also become God-bearers in and through the Eucharist. But it is Mary, most of all, who can guide us then to our entering into this as fully as, as we can, and as we receive him in the Holy Eucharist. She shows us the way to utter, let it be done to me according to your word. And this is what we should be thinking and saying when we receive the, the Holy Eucharist. Again, not in a consumeristic kind of way, but we receive that life and we, at the same time we were saying, let it be done to me. Let this transform me in the way that you desire in order that I might accomplish your will, that I might be brought to salvation and sanctification in accord with your wisdom. So it completely shatters a kind of individualistic approach to the whole Eucharist, and uh, and a, again a kind of consumeristic or uh, you know, overly uh, know, what's the word I'm looking for you know overly physicalistic way of looking at the Eucharist, which uh, we can fall in at times too. In such a way again that it. it Takes it away from the vital relationship that Guardini is talking about here. But we'll get in. Okay, go. we'll get into it more fully as we get through his writings. One
1: thing that's always puzzled me is there is there <clears> any way of measuring the percentage <throat> of Catholics who believe in the key presence say in the fifties and sixties or the forties?
0: Well, I, I've heard extraordinary numbers, and again, I don't know how accurate. Are, but I've heard that sometimes like 50% of Catholics don't believe, sometimes more in the real presence of Christ. And again, these are you know studies, how things are worded might affect the way that people respond to them. But nonetheless, I think we can see more, I think, than from studies by the by the way that we live our lives. If this is our understanding of the Eucharist of both what is made present to us, but what we are being drawn into, then we should be you know, living witnesses to this reality. You know, people should be able to see and understand the fullness of the gospel simply by the way that we, we live our, our lives. And so, I don't know, we can't be too quick as to where we would put ourselves in that study, whether we're believers in that real presence or not. I mean, I think as we go through writings like Guardini's, it does cause to search our hearts and say, how fully am I living this? What is the level of my participation? Or do I sometimes receive the Holy Eucharist in this kind of consumeristic way or just, you know, going through through the motions? You know, priests can be a functionary. You know, he can say the Mass but really not have this understanding or enter into the mystery in the way that Guardini is talking about. And this is part of, I think, what Guardini was trying to address. What are the fundamental attitudes that people have in the approach of the Holy Eucharist? And so we can't, you know, we have a tendency to idealize the past and romanticize it. Or to think that somehow the past People in the past were more reverent than people in the present, and there may be some ways that that is true, but there might be ways that that isn't true as well. In terms of a real understanding of what is going on, the people could participate in the Eucharist in a kind of pro forma way, you know, just going through the the motions and going to mass every Sunday with the extraordinary form, you know, 60 years ago as they could with the the Novus order
1: now. I saw this nice program with Mother Angelica one time talking about, uh, someone had asked her the difference about receiving on the tongue versus on the hand, and she pointed out that she had seen a a gentleman one time receive on the hand but then take it and kiss it before he consumed it. Mm. She thought that that was a very powerful witness and she said, "At least he knew what he. At least he knew who he was receiving."
0: Yeah. that's an interesting thing in sign of reverence, and it does show that. And recently, I was able to participate in the divine liturgy, the Eastern rites, and um, when the priests, are, celebrating priests, are going up to receive, it's interesting how they do it. They go up and they they kiss the altar. They kiss the chalice that is veiled, and they kiss the hand of the main celebrant uh, before they before they receive. And so it is, and I've seen in other rites too where you know people will, will kiss the the chalice after having received. So there, I think we've lost something of that, and certainly in terms of how we we celebrate the novus ordo, these signs that. Uh, really draw us into the reality more and more deeply, and that it aren't, isn't just empty piety. You know, I think certainly everything that we do—the kneeling, you know, the use of incense, even I think the old altar rail—all those things were, you know, very important in fostering a kind of piety. And unfortunately, I think Guardini was prophetic in the sense of where we needed to go. But what he was already seeing there and understanding and what the Second Vatican Council would take up wasn't really embraced in all of its fullness. That in coming into the church back in the early 80s, I don't ever remember this being taught, like not at this depth. You know, a basic fundamental understanding. And I think for most Catholic Christians, that's what it is today that spiritual and religious formation ends at confirmation often and so often it's the understanding of the Eucharist is rudimentary, very basic. So why don't we move on to what Gordini actually has to (laughs) say here. Sorry about that. You're on a roll. I'm on a roll. The participant in Holy Mass enters into a community at table. Early in the Mass, he receives God's word, which he accompanies with his prayers, glorifying God and placing his personal concerns at the feet of the Provident Father. Then beholding and participating, he helps to prepare the sacred meal to which he brings his offering. And however impersonal the money piece, it is the accepted substitute the more vital form of giving now with the priest he turns to the father and receives through faith the presence of him who said i am the living bread that has come down from heaven At communion he sees in the spirit the father's hand proffering the sacred nourishment which he reverently accepts that he may have life but this conception of the lord's supper or feast does not stand alone it is coupled with another that of Christ's coming. Spiritual language has its own idiom for this second aspect which it expresses with great simplicity. Everywhere we meet sentences such as these, Christ is present in the mass. In communion the Lord gives himself to the communicant. He lingers with him. Those who insist that spiritual language is sometimes faulty and who should on this point be soberly corrected, should reread the text of Christ's speech at Capernaum. Referring to the promised Eucharist, the Lord himself uses the image of a coming, an encounter. Along with his insistence of the real eating and drinking, of the real food, we find such sentences as, For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God, he has seen the Father. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eat of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. As the living Father has sent me, and as I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, so he also shall live because of me. So in the Synoptic Gospels we find the same structure in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. And if you remember the words that Christ uses uh, actually describe the action of eating and drinking itself so that there would be no doubt or misunderstanding in those who are hearing him. So it's actually the the the, the word for the action of eating itself. So not just eat, which doesn't evoke any kind of response from us, but it's more like gnaw, so the action of chewing something. Drink is, I always hate this, but it's more like slurp, the sound of drinking itself, the action of drinking. So Christ is leaving no doubt in those who are listening to them about what he's describing, that I am going to give myself to you as your very nourishment, as your food, to be, in order that you might eat and drink it unto eternal life. Uh, we know this was provocative enough and uh, upsetting enough to his disciples that a whole group of them left his company at that point. Uh, they knew the ramifications of this and it wasn't as though Christ tried to correct them on it and draw them back. And even with Peter, he says, are you going to leave me too? And it's only because Peter exists in this relationship with the Lord, this vital relationship, that he could utter those words to the Lord. We're nowhere to go. You have the words of everlasting life. So it's only in the context of his relationship with Christ, all that he saw, all that he experienced, the the relationship that had developed over the course of those years, that Peter could say in faith, where are you to go? This is beyond my grasp intellectually, but I assent to it, not because it's easy, but because you say it. But what Gorghini is saying here, when we look at the Gospel of John, the emphasis shifts to this encounter of Christ coming to us, that he, he is the bread of life he's coming to give us this in order that we might have eternal life that what he shares with the Father we might share as well in and through him and receiving the Holy Eucharist so it's not only emphasizing the reality of the presence but the 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 nature of the relationship itself in which we receive it so it's Christ coming to us and offering himself to us in this way and, and can only be understood in terms of this vital relationship that we really are in the end able to make the ascent that Peter made that we are able to say yes when we understand that our God came to us in this way and offered himself to us and it's then that we can say in love and as one who seen with God as a faith yes Lord amen so so be it and when we say those words at, at the mass this is what should be in, in, in the back of our minds or deep within our hearts but it's in the context of this living relationship with Christ and so you can see when our our relationship with Christ begins to break down when we cease to pray when we cease to read the scriptures. Uh, when we cease to go to the sacraments frequently, in particular confession, in order that we might cast off our sin and again be in this graced state, in order that we might see and understand what we receive. When that relationship breaks down, so does our understanding of the Eucharist and then eventually our belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist breaks down too. First, when the relationship breaks down, inevitably the belief breaks down. The two are Uh, inextricably, what am I trying to say, inextricably tied together. And this is the marvelous point that I think it might seem simple, and Guardini says it is simple, but it's often a point that people are not willing to make and be specific about, that these two are intimately tied together and if one breaks down, the whole thing breaks down for us. The meat indeed and drink indeed offered by the hand of the Father is not a thing, but a person, not it, but he, the supreme person praised in all eternity. Hence the reverent believer is naturally inclined to feel that the words about eating and drinking somehow debase the sacred person of Christ. St. John is the evangelist who had to wage an endless battle against the heresies which began to crop up even in his lifetime. That is why his wording of the truth in all fundamental passages is extremely sharp. In his prologue, he does not state that God's Son became man. He uses the more forceful expression, the Word was made flesh. In reference to the Eucharist he does not use the statement employed by the synoptics that is Matthew Mark and Luke take and eat this is my body but rather he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life everlasting for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him here is the ultimate clarification to which a man must speak his clear, decisive yes, or no. So we are saying that God took our flesh upon himself, and in and through his redemptive work ultimately gives himself to us in this radical way in order to draw us into this union with him. Uh, A union that draws us into the very life of the most holy trinity. And so we see John fighting against Uh, this uh, sort of understanding of of Christ as being less than who he was it's the word of God the eternal word of God the word that fully articulates the, 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 the nature of the Father becomes flesh, takes our flesh upon himself in order that he could be seen and touched and when we received the Eucharist Courtney is saying This is the reality that we are saying yes to. That we are receiving God into our very being. Body, blood, soul, divinity of He who is the Word made flesh. And again, I think this raises us up in understanding something of our dignity, of our destiny. Why would we receive Him in this way? Why would he give himself to us in this way unless it was to become a part of him? To be incorporated into his life in the most radical way. It makes sense, given that we are human beings, that we are sustained by eating, by food, and that Christ would become our companion. And you know the root of that, the meaning of that word, companus, to we break bread with each other and so in the truest word the truest sense of that word Christ becomes our companion he not only breaks bread with us but he becomes the bread through which we are nourished and not simply in this world but in to life eternal and so this again this is why Guardini is going to, to state and restate it so sharply in order that we we might not lose sight of this. Because you can see how easy it is to do do that, to treat Mass as we treat anything else in our life that we see as important. It becomes one thing on our list of to-dos. And, or, or we even make it something that is an obligation, so something that is forced upon us rather than our reception of the most extraordinary gift that we could imagine. We treat it as something that we have to make ourselves to do, that we have to force ourselves against our will. And we we should probably get rid of that word altogether. It's been sort of interesting when the obligation was removed because of COVID. Uh, Certainly, uh, I'm not calling into question uh, that decision, But what was interesting then as the pandemic began to ease and uh, people became vaccinated, that that movement back to mass wasn't so easy once people got used to remaining in their home and sitting in front of a computer or television and watching it from a distance because it requires less of oneself. You know, Guardini's talking about Involving the full self, every ounce of who we are in what is taking place at Mass. Not leaving one part of ourselves out of it, Uh, but it's much easier for us to view it virtually because then we we can participate in it but not really. And psychologically and on a spiritual level, part of that is a resistance. The same resistance that led so many of those disciples to walk away that day when Christ gave His teaching on the Holy Eucharist, because it's saying, I, "I do not want to become that. I do not want to become what I receive." You know, it's easier if we watch it on TV because we can place it, it places a distance there between us and the Eucharist, but to to. Really, To be present, to hear the prayers, to participate in them, but also to receive the Lord in the Holy Eucharist, that's another matter. And to hear ourselves say, Amen, so be it. Not just, yes, I'm willing to receive this, but yes, I'm willing to become this. The self emptying love that allows itself to be broken and poured out, I'm saying yes to this. And how do we make this decisive yes or no, unless we grasp everything that first Christ has taught us? But what Pope Guardini is articulating for us here so well.
1: Yes. only uh, kind of confusing. You know, Saint John was this, you know, the spiritual gospel writer, and yet in his letters he backs up his, his my testimony is true because we have this is what I've seen we have seen with our eyes or with our ears and touched. And so we're basically saying, I I comprehended him through our senses,
0: mm-hmm. which is what we're being good for, or confined to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a different purpose in what would be a pastoral letter and a gospel. A gospel is painting this portrait that is meant to capture for us the fullness of who Christ is and his ministry and all that he's become for us, whereas the pastoral letter is d- directly engaging the Uh, The individuals that John was in touch with in order to engage the things that they were struggling to understand and embrace and so he speaks from personal experience at this point this is what I've seen with my own eyes and so my witness is true you know that he has to uh, be able to articulate that with a kind of force whereas I think the purpose of the gospel is especially when it's thought that John was writing his was to capture something more wide sweeping you know in one sense we can say it's the most theological of, of the Gospels you know that uh, that what he captures really in the prologue is, is making this theological statement about who Christ is with this great
1: specificity
0: that you know the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's doing it for a specific reason, in order to draw us out of simply the the concrete into this greater relationship that we've been drawn into by Christ and his salvific work, which is participation in the life of the Trinity. But we'll we'll again, we'll see what Gordini does here as we move forward. It is at this point that the difficulty we mentioned becomes apparent. A genuine difficulty quite different from the stubborn contrariness of the Jews of the ma- and I'm sorry of the many disciples or of Judas at Capernaum. Here we have the valid fear that the Lord's self-offering could be dragged from the purity of his relation to us as a person to the level of a mere thing or object. A person and at least of all And least of all, he, the Holy One and Lord, cannot simply be given and taken and had. A person is not something to be passed about here and there. A person is not passed about. He comes, enters into a vital you-me relationship, gives himself freely and personally. This is the second concept inherent in the Mass. The first was the meal. The second is the encounter. Both are expressed time and again by Christ himself, as well as by the general spiritual phrases his words have inspired. The one image is sustained by words like the true bread, and food and drink, and flesh for the life of the world. The other by come down from heaven, he who comes to me, and by the countless expressions of the Lord's being among us, with us is inclining lovingly toward us, is dwelling in us and uniting himself to us. So, when I first became Catholic, I think this is one of the things that struck me at the time. You know, I grew up Presbyterian and very rarely was something like a Eucharist celebrated, uh, maybe a few times during the course of the year, but in a much different way because of what, the, what was believed not in the real presence of Christ, that was purely symbolic. And so it was for them a cracker and a little cup, almost like the shot glass of grape juice. And that this was passed around through the pews, as one would pass the collection basket and you would take the little, what is it, like a soup cracker is what it looked like and the little glass for you would take it for yourself. I think what struck me the first time I experienced mass was the completely different focus of the entire congregation on the prayers of the liturgy itself, what the priest was saying, the actions, and then the reception of Holy Communion. So it was going up to receive the Lord as a gift. He wasn't simply passed around the room but one would go up and receive in a particular kind of way Uh, and whether it's kneeling on the tongue or making a throne, nonetheless it was uh, was clear that there was a radically different sense of what one was receiving at that moment. At that point I I didn't understand it but I could see the the power of it and I could see what it elicited in those who were present and, and experiencing it. That's what I first saw, what was going on within the congregation itself and how they were reacting to what was being celebrated at the altar. And this, I think, is what Gardini is trying to communicate to us, that there is something radically different and on multiple levels. Again, not some, something to be passed around, because Catholics could still, as we said, fall into that attitude but a person that is coming to us, who is entering into our lives, and who we receive with with love and faith and an intimacy. But these, again, these things are interlocked for us and must remain so, or we could slip in, in one direction or another. The Mass is the Lord's memorial. We've tried to understand the word as richly and profoundly as possible. Now we must go a step further. A memorial can commemorate only a person, not an earthquake or a particular fruitful, particularly fruitful harvest. These can only be remembered. I can commemorate some beloved victim of the catastrophe or a loved one's joy over a blessed autumn's abundance. Commemoration always implies a person and it presupposes a vital relationship to that person genuine commemoration is a projection of an already existing we relationship. So we've we've touched upon this already but he's emphasizing for us again that it's, it's not simply an event that we are looking back disconnected from that it's a living vital relationship that we are engaged in in the moment. And so we don't want to turn it into An historical event that took place two thousand years ago, but that which is made radically present to us in the moment, lacking nothing as we've seen. God bless you. Okay, so are you following him along so far? Any thoughts or questions? Okay. This is precisely what we have in holy mass. The memorial which the Lord bequeathed us is not merely the memory of an event or the portrayal of a great figure. It is the fulfillment of our personal relation to Christ, of the believer to his Redeemer. In the Mass, Christ comes in all his personal reality, bearing his salutary destiny. He comes not to just anyone, but to his own. Here again, St. John brings this mystery into particularly sharp focus. God's Son comes from heaven, from the Father, whom he alone knows. He lives from the Father's vitality. Everything he has and is, he has and is through the Father. But this intimate bond of love does not stop there. The Father sends his Son to men in order that he may pass on to them the divine life he has received. As the living Father has sent me and as I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me." So interesting isn't it beautiful that he's saying that the relationship that he has with the Father, that radical union, that sharing of life that exists between them is now what we are drawn into through our participation in the Holy Eucharist. So he's saying that what he, that the, the depth, the infinite love that he and the Father share is now something that we are drawn in to participate in through the most holy Eucharist. I think the, the feast that we often under-celebrate but uh, that captures this is the, the feast of our Lord's Ascension where he ascends in with our humanity transformed and but nonetheless in our, our, our personhood and he in and through this becomes the first fruits of what has been accomplished through the paschal mystery so we see in him at the ascension what we are destined to participate in all of his fullness he ascends to the father and so those who have faith and those who receive him in him and in the Eucharist become one with him then come to share in the fullness of that life in him we are destined to share in the life of the Holy Trinity and to to live in and participate in an infinite love Again all of this I think should tr- transform the way that we pr- prepare ourselves as well as participate in the Mass when he became man, Jesus bridged the gulf between heaven and earth, between the Father and us once and for all. Henceforth, he is with us, and the sense that he belongs to us is on our side. Emmanuel, the God who has come. Yet in the special manner of the mystery, the Lord spans that gulf anew. Every, every time the memorial is celebrated, First in the readings of the day, we receive word of him. Then the offerings are prepared, and there is a pause. By consecration, he comes to us, the subject of an incomprehensibly dynamic memorial, and gives us his his grace abounding attention. In communion, he approaches each of us individually and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And so far as the door swings open in genuine faith and love he enters and gives himself to the believer for his own so there, there's always this radical personal element for for us he stands and knocks at the door the door of our hearts and waits to be received in and received in with faith and so it, as says he does not simply come to anyone in this way, but he comes to those who are his own, those who have made this ascent, but also live in the intimacy of this relationship. Any comments or questions? I know this is one of the more challenging ones that we looked at, but I think the distinction is, is worth our, our labor. This might be the place to mention the general significance of the Lord's coming in the liturgy. What are the Christian implications of the word feast? When we stop to consider such things we must remember that our century has lost touch with certain ultimate mysteries. We are rationalists and psychologists and reduce everything to the intellect or moral plane or to the subjective level of experience. So it's interesting you know He he's picking up certainly on everything that he had already been seeing uh, at the beginning of, of the 20th century uh, this kind of reductive approach to life of dissecting it so whether you know we are rationalist or psychologists we reduce everything we, we pull, pull it apart and when we uh, And so we are reducing everything to this lower level, even on a moral plane. And you can find a lot of Christians that will do that. It becomes moral teaching or kind of legalism and not this vital relationship. Certainly there is a moral element. Christ did make specific moral teachings. But it's in the context of this full revelation of God that is being made to us. Uh, and if we don't see it in that way then again it can lead to a, a kind of scrupulosity or a kind of Phariseeism that Christ encountered in his own day Christianity can be reduced to a set of moral teachings and principles it can become an ideology rather than a living relationship As what a feast is, Easter for example, we should probably reply something to the effect that Easter is the day on which we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we joyfully praise God, that filled with faith and love and hopeful of sharing in the graces of his resurrection, we seek out the Lord, firmly resolving to live the new life is made available to us. So, on a fundamental level, this is what we would want to be saying to to a person. What is Easter for you? And we are already saying, or Cordelia says, we should say at least this, that this is what has taken place and this is what we want to participate in all of its fullness. This is how we see our life being shaped by it. In fact, we are drawn into a new life. Altogether. So on a fundamental level, this is what we would want to articulate, but it goes much further than that. Have we expressed the essence of Easter, he asked? Not yet, for we have not touched the reality that lies at its core. The unique manner in which the Lord's resurrection is renewed, not as a mere repetition, but so that he actually steps anew from eternity into our time, our presence. All what was said in the chapter time and eternity and he comes in the plenitude of his whole redemptory life each time in the particular mystery of the day that the unrolling liturgical year is commemorating the mystery of God's incarnation of his epiphany or his passion or his resurrection and ascension he comes to us from the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit so it's definitely a step further. It's saying simply more than we hope to participate in this life. We're saying that in the celebration of Easter, that eternity enters into time, that this reality that took place is made present to us in the most direct fashion possible, and that we're drawn into it. To wait for him to invite him, to go, to receive him, and honor and praise him, to be with him, drawn into the intimacy of communion with him. That is the Christian feast. So there's, he captures a kind of urgent longing and desire that we hear so often expressed in the Fathers of the Church. It's the language of love and of, of intimacy that is used. And so it's it's not just, uh, uh, you know, our performing in a utilitarian way this action or commemorating something in the past. It's our waiting and preparing ourselves and inviting uh, the Lord to come and dwell within us. And we prepare ourselves with this urgent longing and desire by the way that we live our lives to receive him fully. In the past, we've talked about living from the Eucharist to Eucharist. So we enter into this deep intimacy with the Lord. We experience the grace of that union and communion with him. And what that does is it fosters an even deeper longing for him. And so we, we live our lives in such a way that we become more and more conformed to the mind of Christ and the life of Christ. And in anticipation of entering into that intimate moment of consummation, the consummation of that love again, and the Holy Eucharist. And so far from, again, this being an obligation or something that is utilitarian in its its manner, that we are looking forward with this longing to every time that we are able to celebrate and receive the Holy Eucharist. Because we know, It's not just our commemorating an event, but receiving a person. And it's for this reason that marriage is described as a sacrament, because it captures so powerfully the uh, intimacy that Christ shares with his bride, the church. Uh, That there is uh, nuptial imagery, here I've told people I've had people tell me that they don't like this image of Christ the heavenly bridegroom Uh, that there's made something that makes them a little uncomfortable with it but this is what we believe Israel was the bride of God and Christ becomes the bride bridegroom of, of the church his bride and he gives himself to her That relationship is consummated when he gives himself to her, withholding nothing, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And in a similar way, we should withhold nothing of ourselves from our Lord. And so the church as a whole, but each of of us, our souls, are, are brides to the heavenly bridegroom. We wait, we anticipate that moment of consummation of deepest intimacy with our God. And so it becomes pretty difficult at this point in our thinking uh, to turn this into something that is abstract or uh, again to approach it in an unemotional way. And uh, again, you know, I think perhaps we've uh, under-emphasized marriage in the sense that it is such a powerful sacrament that it makes present what it signifies, certainly for the couple, but in this even grander way, it makes uh, present to us the reality that Christ has with his bride, the church. There's this irrevocable bond that then is consummated in the gift of, of the self. We begin to see how closely interwoven the concepts of the feast and the encounter are, they do not conflict but mutually sustain each other. Each prevents the other from one-sidedness and falsehood. The concept of coming, the encounter, guards the dignity of the person and protects the concept of the supper from unseemliness and irreverence. It reminds us that communion is not possession but exchange, like the reciprocal gaze of a genuine we. On the other hand, the concept of the supper projects that of the encounter to the incomprehensible holy mystery of ultimate intimacy. Among human beings, an encounter is always relative. It never completely embraces the other person. This last unbridgeable separation is the exigency of all created love. And holy communion, that last vestige of distance is removed. And we are assured of an arrival that surpasses all created possibility, genuine union. So, you know, we live in a fallen world, a world that uh, experienced sin and the division that it brought, not only between ourselves and God, but between ourselves and each other. And it is only God himself that can undo that, and not only undo it, but to bring into reality something that is far greater uh, and a union not only between each other but with him. and in and through him with each other, that knows nothing of the limitations that as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that we often experience in our signs of affection and intimacy with each other. There's always something that holds us back from that, knowledge this is part of our vulnerability as human beings and why we develop the defenses that we do and hold back you know even guard from revealing ourselves to the other because we know in the revealing of the selves of making ourselves vulnerable to the other we can be wounded and we see that in christ in the most radical way perfect love ultimately rejected but in that rejection he does not pull away, he does not hide himself, but he opens himself in an even more radical way, arms outstretched, hanging naked upon the cross. He pours himself out in love and breathes forth, as he breathes his last on the cross, that divine love, that spirit of divine love, in order that that sin might not perpetuate the division, but it might be overcome that we might be reconciled to god and to one another so if we wish to read more about the life that flows to us from this mystery we should turn to the letters of the apostle paul the man who writes in the epistle to the galatians it is now no longer i that live but christ lives in me is the evangelist of the totally encountered Christ, Christ in us. And we, we've talked about this many times before in multiple groups at the oratory, that the phrase that is, is not simply, it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. It is no longer I who live I. So the word ego is used here in Paul's writing. So it's no longer I who live I, and in a separated, individualistic, false self that is divided from the other, from each other and from God is no longer I who live I, but now Christ who lives within me. And because of that reality, we know the most radical union with each other but also with our God. And we know, I think in this spiritual struggle, that it is our ego that gets in the way this sense of self that often becomes the idol that we worship in one way or another. You know, that we put out there and we react to everybody and the way that they're engaging us or not engaging us. The way they treat us, the way they don't treat us, or or we're seeking to satisfy that self in some way through the things of this world or what satisfies us physically. And what develops then is this false self that becomes something very very pitiful in a way because even as we grasp to satisfy that ego we become more and more divided from each other, from God and so we know a a kind of radical and painful loneliness in our existence it's only in and through faith and all the things that we've discussed here that we see a, a path away from that from the sadness, the sorrow, the fear, the anxiety, the depression that we often experience, to healing, to hope, to intimacy, to love eternal. And again, I don't think we often understand the gift of the Eucharist in 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 these ways, in the sense that it gives it has an effect upon us to give us the freedom of that. That in some ways, our, our fundamental attitude as Christian men and women should be this extraordinary joy that we see develop over the course of time. Or a kind of healing from our fears and our anxieties. Again, it can be over the course of time, depending what our life experience has been. But nonetheless, that's what God wants for us this deep healing that we might not experience that loneliness that separation from self others and from god and even at times from our very own self ourselves that we feel a kind of internal disintegration you know and so we you know we can't see you know what our identity is really rooted in and i think we see that developing in our culture that the more we move away from this, people begin to grasp sometimes that the more bizarre things in life that separate them even more from the other in order to distinguish their own identity, their own individuality. But what, what that really is indicative of, I think, is kind of loneliness and sense of lost lostness. That, if I can use that word, lostness, that, you know, that we are we feel so disconnected that we have to do something in our life to distinguish us, to draw attention to our, our, ourselves. And we see it happening in so many different ways. It's almost mind-boggling, and one wonders what's going to come in the next generation. So, final paragraph. Hey, you're probably all (laughs) saying. Thank goodness. In the preceding chapter, we concluded that participation in Holy Mass demands that we make our concept of the meal, the feast, a living one. Now we must add that participation in the Mass also consists in our awareness of our encounter with Christ and the consciousness that he is about to come is here in this room is turning to me is here. We must listen for and hear his knock on the door. We must profoundly experience his arrival and visit without sentimentality or super exaltation but simply calmly and a faith that is all truth. So. You know, again, we've we've heard so many times people speak of what participation in mass should be, that we should fully participate. But I think that often elude the meaning of that often eludes us. What does it really mean to participate in the mass? And this is what Guardini so astutely captures in each of his meditations: the fundamental attitude that is to be within our minds and our hearts. Both what he says here in this last paragraph, a feast, a living one, but also an encounter with Christ. This is our participation, our our understanding and entering into this reality. And sometimes in the most personal ways that I just articulated. You know, this movement away from this kind of painful loneliness and uh, you know, separation from the other that we experience. And you know I, I don't want to over generalize in, in saying this but I, I think that you know that a lot of the depression and a lot of the anxiety that has fallen in particular to Modern therapists to treat which they often do very well I mean in the sense of you know giving, helping people come to a sense of meaning in their life and to persevere I think a lot of that though reaches to a much more fundamental level you know when we become disconnected from he who is the source of our life which is what our sin does you know that it, we lose sight of the beloved. And we gradually turn in upon ourselves, and we what we find there often feels lacking, or empty, or wounded, and so inevitably we experience the pain of that. And the the moment that in faith we begin to turn to Christ, we even in experiencing that woundedness, we're not experiencing it alone. And I think that's why psychotherapy can be so healing, because There's someone who's not afraid of that woundedness, or the pain, or the anger that is often associated with it, and is willing to make that journey with us. But we know that the one who enters into that in the deepest way with it, and has has taken it upon himself in the most radical way, who just doesn't listen to it, but has experienced it all as if it is his own, that is where we begin to experience the most hope and the deepest kind of healing he's given us the healing of all and the Holy Eucharist and confession and the gift of the spirit so modern unpack- psychotherapy stole everything from Christianity <laughs> yes can
1: you just uh, unpack mm-hmm. a little further that last sentence his arrival yeah that's, okay. that's, that's a very, it's very and I, and I want to make sure that I, that I, that I step, right. step with Yeah, you. I
0: found it a little confusing when I first read it too. What, why does he la- add that this last sentence in here? Because I've seemed to uh, articulate, have articulated it in this very sentimental and super, ex- with a super exaltation. Where, where I think he, he is saying that th- there can be a danger of a kind of sentiment, sentiment sentimentalizing this or romanticizing it to the point again that we put push it out there and make it into something that it's not. You know, where we try to clean it up or reduce it down to limits that we are, are comfortable with. Whereas he's saying here that we, we can't sentimentalize it or super exalt it, but we approach it simply, calmly, in a faith that is all true. So we are allowing ourselves to be drawn into all truth. So we receive this gift, not as something that we can shape and use as we see fit or for our own purposes. We receive this gift in order that we might respond to God in the way that he desires. And that we might follow the path that he leads us upon, that we might embrace the crosses in particular that he calls us to carry. Like left to our own devices, we could receive this gift and say, I'm I'm going to use it for this particular purpose. There's one author I love reading, and and, uh, he wrote this book called Suffering. (laughs) So it's why I picked it up one day in the library, I don't know, but it was in the old oratory library, but it turned out to be this superb book. But one of the titles of the Reflections is that uh, something like we would know. We would never choose how, how did that go this, the saint that god would want us to be you know we would always be the saint that we would want to be in our own minds that we've devised in our mind how would we envision ourselves as being holy whereas the path that god often draws us upon the saints that he wants us to become is in accord with his own wisdom what he sees is going to be sanctifying for us and for others. And so if we sentimentalize this, or if we exalt this in our mind, we, we can subtly then seek to the fashion it and that sentimentality. It can be distorted, become saccharine. Whereas sometimes God draws us down these paths that are pretty gritty and not, not pretty. so we're not all plaster st- statues you get it, you know there's kind of roughness to the gospel and to following christ and we can see that you know i think people often try to pull the gospel apart and set aside those things that are more challenging to embrace
1: That you made that was uh, very uh, penetrating was this notion about how you can get into experiences where you try to protect yourself from 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 becoming vulnerable, right? And the the, the way that our our Lord in His Passion was, you know, completely uh, exposed and vulnerable in in a way that I couldn't even ever imagine. Even
0: in marriage, it's hard. I mean, nobody knows another like one spouse knows another, because you're with each other across the span of time. You've been through you know, very painful situations, joyful situations. You've seen each other at your best, but also at your worst. And it's still, that vulnerability can be very difficult. There are all kinds of times where we would pull back into ourselves to protect ourselves. And there are also times that we'll, we'll know the chinks in the armor Because we know the vulnerability of the others, so when we get in a fight, that's the place that we go to first, you know. Where we are meant to protect that and hold that precious because it's the vulnerability of the other. So we are not to use it in in anger, but we are to guard our words and guard our actions. And it's hard, you know, It's not. it requires a lot of grace to do that. And then also to open oneself over and over again. In that attempt to get
1: oneself in the Yes? Your point about loneliness and causing so much despair. But I think you know, even in the time period of daily life, um, there's such an emphasis now on um, almost a, a, a right not to have to suffer. Because somehow that's, you know, it's happen. Yeah, right. And maybe there's some of you are know, suffering eat this take this and you know, you to avoid it, run away from it. Yeah. And, and, the more and, 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 uh, yeah,
0: but, but accepting is, is is that growing up yeah. or, uh, growing up emotionally but also spiritually because I think the more that we see our identity is only rooted in this, our own experience perhaps, mm-hmm. in this world and our pursuits, things such as that, then we want to protect ourselves from as much suffering as we can. That's why we have all the commercials that we do about the drugs out there. You take this, you know, aspirin, you'll never have a headache again. You'll never have to deal with pain again, you know, because we become concerned about protecting ourselves from the realities of life and so you know that's all reflective of this lack of understanding of the life that we've really been drawn into that Christ shows us that we are not to be fearful of suffering or death and that far from it being something that destroys us you know it can open us up in our capacity to love but ultimately we are, are drawn into something that goes beyond it. You know, our life is not limited to this world. I mean, we quickly devolve devolve into hypochondriacs. You know, we want to protect ourselves. And I think this is, this pandemic that we've gone through and are still in some ways going through has revealed probably a lot of that to people. You know, how we've all individually reacted to the news that there is a virus out there and that this virus could be deadly and that other people could infect us and we could infect them. And I would think I was talking to people before the group, uh, I was talking to Matthew before the group that, the, you know, the first time I went to a grocery store when, and when the pandemic hit and I had a, my mask on, you know, for the first time in a store and I went and did my mom's grocery shop, and I got out of the store and I was sweating. And I think, you know, why in the world am I sweating? And it was because there was such an incredible tension in the store. And I had gone early in the morning too, so there was hardly anybody, anybody in there. But as you go down the aisle, you know, there was this real tension as you pass another people. And a guy with a big beard, they think that that's like a virus catcher. So it's like, even though I had this beard over, my, or this mask over my mouth, that wasn't doing it for them. But so people were, you know, really frightened. You could pick up that tension. And by the time I got out of the store, I was like, oh my gosh, that was terrible. Yes. Or walking down the sidewalk, you know, people would jump out into the street <laughs> you know, oh,
1: yeah.
0: in order to get, make sure they were six feet apart, even if you had the mask on. But
1: yeah, but to witness each and every one of us as a threat to the other, yeah. that was a, a, a very profound wounding. That's
0: right. But, but also, even in terms of the larger implications of that, that we could die that we were suddenly faced with our own mortality. Mm -hmm. And so we're struck to the very core of who we are as human beings, but also of our faith. Where does our our faith lie?
1: Or even worse, that we might bring harm or death to another. That's right. Yeah. And
0: in a sense, I think, you know, and I don't want this to come off critical, at all, but in some sense, I think we, the church weren't prepared for that. That this was an, an incredibly important moment pastorally for the church, not only in terms of how you know priests and bishops respond, but how we as Christians respond to each other in making our way through a moment of crisis. because a moment of crisis is typically also a moment of profound transformation for us too. We go through this. Period in our life where our life is turned upside down. This is exactly what took place with the pandemic. Everything shut down people were working from home and But it could have been this moment for us To think about spiritually. What does this mean for us as christians? How do we as christians Bear witness to our faith and bear witness to christ by the way that we go through this by the way that we attend To others in the midst of this pandemic and I think what we saw was a similar kind of fear, understandably. But I think the initial reaction is, what do we do practically to protect each other? And on one level, one could say, OK, that's, that's charitable, and one would do that. But it could also be driven by fear. Now, what do people need during a time of, of a pandemic? when fear strikes them to their very depths. You know, they need more than wearing a mask, people wearing masks. They need to be engaged and talked to, they need the sacraments. Now I can't tell you how moving it was when we finally were able to start hearing confessions again, even before we could start saying mass publicly, and we were doing it outside, how grateful people were to be able to receive the grace of the sacrament. I mean, it was snowing, it was raining. They were kneeling in puddles, but th- that's where they they felt connected to God, in the way that they needed to be. And this, that's where I think we falter. I think we were fortunate here in some ways with the adoration. We were able to bring that back. So people, you know usually there's not the chapel isn't filled so people could come in any time for adoration and have this encounter with Christ in this very powerful way and that along with confession I think helped things but in some sense we, we really weren't prepared for it so I know that was a lot and so, you know, take this with you. Guardini is, I think, the most underrated writer of the 20th century. And I think he provides a way for us to move forward that isn't reactionary, that really is seeking to understand the faith in the deepest way possible and engage in the reality that Christ has made possible for us. And so, you know, this book is worth having and reading and rereading in your life, as well as a, a number of others of his as well. So, why don't we close there with our prayer to St. Philip Neary? And then, following there are some snacks, some sweets, and coffee. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Look down from heaven, holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine, from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit O most diligent healer this vineyard which thy right hand planted, which says much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid. To thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, Roll thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and placed as thou art on high, keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. May God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in
1: peace. Thanks Thanks, be God.
0: God. Thank you all.
1: Thank you. You enjoyed it.